Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning. If uh, you don't recognize these gentlemen uh, yet, let me introduce you. To my far right is Michael DeFazio, a professor at Ozark Christian College, and he and his wife Beth and children attend here regularly. And in the middle of us is Chad Ragsdale, and many of you know Chad. He's been with us for many, many years, and both of these uh, guys have been dependable and served us well in preaching and teaching here at the, the church. I appreciate both of these guys for their minds And probably the greatest compliment I can pay anybody in the academic world is this. They love the church. And to me, that's hugely important, is to be able to understand the trends and significance of the scriptures, but also understand the value of people and community and all that goes with it. So I really do, and I won't use this word lightly, I cherish the opportunity to uh, open their hearts and minds to you uh, as we talk about this concept of truth. if you go, one of the, the big questions is, what is true anymore? What, what really matters? Is there anything we can hold on to that's actually true for every human being in the world? And those are big philosophical questions. And, of course, we're going to try to handle those in 28 minutes on a Sunday morning. So please pray for us. Uh, that's why we gave ourselves a little bit more time today. And we're going to stretch this out over three hours to ask different questions every service and uh, try to handle this the best we can. So, Chad, I'd like to begin with you with the question we've talked about now for about six months together. What is truth? Which is a loaded question. I mean, there's truth seems like seems like one of those things that's so readily apparent and readily obvious that it should be simple to define, but it's really not. It's a it's a slippery concept, a slippery word to try to define. And and as I think about truth, there's really one of the things that makes it complicated to define is that there's really three different kinds of truth that we encounter on a daily basis. Let me just kind of explain each one very briefly. Um, One kind of truth is what you might call um, situational truths, Um, truths that are are true in one situation but maybe not in another situation. Like, for instance, um, it is proper to drive on the right-hand side of the road is a situational truth. There might be some situations where it's improper or unlawful to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Um, Another kind of truth would be more um, an emotional truth or a subjective truth, a truth that's true for me, and it's absolutely true for me, but it may not uh, necessarily be true for you. A truth like, you know, my favorite color is blue um, is that kind of truth. And some truths in our lives, are, some very important truths in our lives fall within that category, like the truth that I love my wife and she loves me. It's a very, very important kind of truth, but it's true for me. Um, And then there's a third kind of truth, which I'm just going to call this a a more objective truth or a truth that where it conforms, something conforms to reality. Um, So it's true that I'm sitting on a stool right now. It's a true statement about the nature of reality. Um, And it's true for me, but it's also true for you. You you look at me, I'm sitting on a stool. It's it's something that is true for all of us. And so you have these three different types of truth. And I was thinking about this last night. Um, uh, you know, if I said a sentence like, my favorite football team won a game against Syracuse last night, 
That sentence alone has all three different kinds of truth. My favorite football team won a game against Syracuse last night. And so it's, it's, it's kind of slippery to, to, to try to talk about and define truth. Now, here's the challenge that faces us, though. So many people in our world, so many people in our lives, in our culture, they want to put religious truth, faith statements, in the first two categories. So when you talk about God or when you talk about Jesus, that's just a situational truth. It's just because you grew up in the Bible Belt or it's just because you grew up in a, a Christian home or whatever. That's the only reason. That's the only, that's the only reason why that's true. It's situational. Or some people say, well, it's just an emotional truth. You feel a certain way about God or it's just your opinion. Other people have different opinions. What's true for you may not be true for them. And we all have different competing truths when it comes to God. It's just sort of this subjective opinion sort of thing. But what we want to try to, to really drive home this morning, and really in this entire series, is that are there situational truths about God? Yeah. Are there subjective truths about God? Yes, there certainly are. God, you know, I feel a certain way. I have an emotional response to God. But what we really want to drive home this morning is that there are, there are certain truths about God. God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, lived was crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose again on the third day. There are certain truths that we hold that are absolutely objective truths about reality, truths about history, that these things actually happened in, in real time and space. And so when we talk about truth, we're talking about truth in, with that sort of perspective on it, that these are true descriptions of real things that happen. Yeah, and the only, the, the only thing I'd add to that is, is just, um, and not, it's really not even adding, it's just building out part of what he said. Um, it's, you mentioned that in our culture, everybody wants to put religion in these first two categories, but not the third. And the thing I want to point out is that, that that's just a choice that we make ahead of time. And that most people in our world make that choice to put religion in the category of opinion or situation rather than like, you know, basis in reality. And we make that choice because for now three or four hundred years, that, or now two, three hundred years, that's been the choice that our culture has made as a whole. And so most of the people that we interact with and most of us as well just sort of naturally decide ahead of actually asking the question, where is religion going to fit in this? Where are truths about Jesus going to fit in this? And what I think Chad's done for us, even in just that brief answer, is to say, back up and recognize that historically, no, like claims about God belonged in all three categories. And really the only reason why you'd take them out of the latter category is if you just don't want them in there. There's no real logical basis for taking uh, faith questions and God questions out of this third category. They really just always have belonged in all three of them. And so uh, whether or not we agree with certain claims, let's, let's not um, short-circuit the process or even allow our friends to short-circuit the process by acting like claims about God aren't claims about reality. Would you say that's yeah, true? Yeah, and I, I, I would just caution, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think we need to, to really be cautious about allowing ourselves to see our faith, to see our beliefs about God, our beliefs about Jesus, yeah. to see those things as situational mm-hmm. or as subjective truths. So, you know, this tendency that we have to, like, yeah, Jesus is real for me, and I'm a follower of Jesus on Sunday morning, and it's all, like, really, um, you know, it's real to me in that moment, but then maybe on Monday or Tuesday, maybe not as much. You know, we're treating Jesus as a situational truth in our lives, where he's true in one situation, but maybe not quite as real or meaningful or true in another situation. 
Um, and equally so, you know, to treat our faith as simply an opinion or an emotional response. Um, that God makes me feel a certain way or, or, you know, worshiping makes me feel a certain way and um, just treating it as this sort of subjective emotional truth and neglecting the reality that, that the, what we talk about and, and the things that we say and, and the, the, the words that we declare in worship, these are true in a real sense. Mm-hmm. That Jesus really did raise from the dead and that matters. That God really did create men and women in his image and that matters. Amen, yeah. So, as we talk about worldview, to, to draw us all into this, I think what we need to walk out when we talk about truth is, for many of us, there are things that you're holding on to being secure, real truths that may not be. Mm-hmm. See, what I want to project this morning to this community of believers is the three of us don't stand on stage telling you what you need to believe. The, the truth reveals itself through Jesus Christ. And God, we're to take every thought captive to him. So I, I want to remind you that the importance of our discussion is not a philosophical debate between three guys on stage about what is true, but to show you that God will reveal truth to you. And when he does, we have to hold on to that as the most precious thing we can get our hands on. And so uh, to be able to decipher what are those things that are true to Chad but not true to Michael and I, those are, those are healthy discussions. And th- the truth is... Interesting term. <laughs> My understanding of it is we have to be, I have to be very cautious as a father to state the import of God's truth to my, my children and not add things to it that are not present. And so what our discussion today, as we kind of navigate this together, is how do we seek the truth and hold on to it? So, Michael, I want to ask you our next question. Yep. Why do we think we have the truth? Yeah, that's such a good question. For, for I know it's been an important question in my own life personally and then also in a lot of people who I've interacted with. And let me answer it in a couple different ways and I'll try to be as brief as can. You guys can, can plug in the holes. Um, one of the things that we, we, you know, this often comes to us as why do you think your version is true? Why do you think you have the truth? How is it possible that, you know, out of all the people in the world, you, you can be confident in, in, in what you think? And um, a lot of times it comes along with this accusation of arrogance. It's arrogant for you as Christians, Christians to say that you have the truth. How can you say that um, you know, Muslims are wrong and Buddhists are wrong and so on and so forth, but you have the truth? And the first thing I want to say before I actually answer the question is um, we don't have, arrogance isn't part of the equation. Now, we may or may not be arrogant, right? But that's more how we carry ourselves. It's not whether or not we believe something is true. We all believe something is true. Even that person who's saying, well, I think that all religions have part of the truth. How is that not arrogant? To look at like centuries of millennia of human history and say, I know all of you thought that you had a truth, but really I can now see from my perspective that each of you had a portion of the truth. And so now from the 21st century, I know enough as an enlightened 21st century person to point out to all the rest of you that you were only seeing part of the equation. You're only seeing part of the picture. And I don't know, there's certainly not any less arrogant than us saying, no, we think Christianity is true. So all that to say, you know, if you're ever accused of arrogance for believing that this is true, just, you know, gently help people understand, no, we all believe something is true, even if what you believe is that we can't know it. That's a belief. So to the question itself, why our version? 
And this is where it really brings it to a center. I know for, for all three of us, and, and just like Mark said, we're not philosophers up here debating truth. I am not a philosophically minded person. I'm really, that's not how I'm wired. Um, and so for me, it just comes down to, can, 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 you, can you base this on something? Is there something I can point to and say, this is the reason why I should be here? And Christianity has always done that specifically with the resurrection. Jesus gave us something to point to, and he said, if this isn't for real, then I'm not for real. And the early Christians pointed to this and said, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is useless. It's futile. It's worthless. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's very clear about that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we should not be here. We should not be risking our lives on his behalf. And so it all rises or falls with the resurrection, which just raises the question, why should we believe in the resurrection? And uh, we're going to go more further into this later on in our series, but here's my short version of the argument. I think there's really two reasons. One, you have to explain uh, why he was not, he was gone. So Jesus was gone. And by that I mean he died, he was placed in the tomb, and then he was taken out of the tomb. He was no longer there. So if his body was still in the tomb, then they would have pointed to it, end of story. So Jesus was gone is, is part of what you have to explain, and we are here is the second part of what you have to explain. I mean, you and I. 2,000 years later, mostly Gentiles, worshiping the God of the Bible, worshiping the God of Israel, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in previously unrecognizable ways. We're worshiping on Sunday, not Saturday, which means we're breaking the Sabbath. We're worshiping by singing songs to Jesus as part of the Godhead, which would, uh, at least in certain, you know, in, in, according to Judaism, would be against the rules. We're also here as a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, without regard for whether or not we're Jews and Gentiles. And we, the center of our worship is taking communion, where we sort of ritually ingest the body and blood of another human being. So we have all these different ways in which we worship together that just, you don't just all of a sudden change. I mean, for centuries, God's people worshiped on the Sabbath, and they were passionately committed to the Sabbath. They would sooner die than break the Sabbath. They certainly were not going to be accused of anything remotely connected to cannibalism or idolatry, treating Jesus as a God, or you know, allowing Gentiles to come in without being Jews. So something changed. This would be like if Mark showed up one day and said, we're not going to meet on Sunday anymore. We're now going to do church only on Thursday nights. And instead of the communion, we're actually going to have beer and hot wings. That's going to be our sort of sacred meal together. And I'm going to be preaching out of the Quran. You know what I mean? Like, that wouldn't go over so well. I don't know that he would continue being, you know, the pastor for very long if he tried to do that. And similarly, something has to explain these changes. So how do you, how do you explain the fact that Jesus was gone and that we're here? Well, you could say, you know, the disciples stole the body, but then you have the problem of this group of people dying for what they knew was a lie. You could say the authorities stole the body. They would have just presented the body. You could say he swooned and didn't really die. Well, how, how could he then get out of the tomb and convince everybody that he defeated death? You could say that, you know, well, everybody early on knew that he didn't really rise from the dead, but then the legend grew. Within like 10 or 20 or 30 years, legends don't grow that fast. And so you have these two major points that you can't deny. He was gone from the tomb, and we're here in church on Sunday morning, uh, worshiping together, and, and you have to come up with some sort of an explanation for those things, and really the only one that fits the bill is the resurrection. So again, for us, if you don't, if you don't, hear, if you don't remember the details of what I just said, just remember that for us as Christians, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that establishes the, the truthfulness, and therefore we argue from that towards the faithfulness of Scripture and the reality of God and the meaning of creation and so on and so forth. So that would be my basic answer. Chad, what, fix my holes. What, uh, what am I not saying? I don't know if there's anything you need, need to fix. Um, just want to accent some points that you made. Th- this is one of, the, one of the key questions that we face, because as we hold to our faith publicly, 
um, which there is always something public about our faith. As we hold our faith publicly, this is one of the biggest objections that we'll often hear. Well, how can you say that you have the truth and that I don't? That seems so, I don't know, it seems so intolerant, seems yep. so arrogant, yeah. seems yeah. so closed-minded. Have, have any of you encountered this objection before? What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. And there's really two things that are going on there when people say that. One thing that's going on is they're responding against a typical way that we hold the truth mm-hmm. sometimes, or that Christians have yep. sometimes hold. So they're, they're responding to an attitude that some Christians have towards the truth, which is an attitude of arrogance and, and an attitude of, of gracelessness, if I, could, if I could use that term. So one response that they're having is, is sort of this emotional response towards an attitude. Um, but the other thing that's going on there is, in our culture today, religion has moved into the emotional opinion realm. Um, and so we're not, when we talk about God, it's not as if we're talking about something that's out here, independent of us. In our culture, when we talk about God, we're talking about something that's in here, that's a part of me. And so if you disagree with my beliefs, you're not disagreeing with my beliefs, you're disagreeing with me, with mm. something that's deeply personal to me. Mm. And, and so we've turned religion and faith and God into this very emotional, um, subjective sort of thing. Um, but that's not, that's not the claim of the gospel. Right. It's sort of like, you know, the, the president of the United States is Barack Obama, okay? And, and that's, not, that's, not, that's something that objectively exists. It's real. It's not an opinion that I have. It's just something that's real. Now, we say that Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead. These aren't opinions. These aren't emotions. These are things that exist in reality. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to believe it. But they, they're not these sort of subjective truths. And that's, that's the one thing that our culture has, very, has a lot of difficulty coming to grips with, is that when we make truth claims about God, we're not just talking about opinions that we've right. come to adopt. We're talking about things that exist in reality. Yeah, we're right or we're wrong. If you mm-hmm. were to say, you know, John McCain is the president of the United States or whomever, Mitt yep. Romney, then you would, in this case, be inaccurate. Yep. It's, it's just, and so in that sense, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're either be telling the truth or we're, we're telling a lie. It's not just, we're, tell, we're saying something that makes us feel good about the way in which we're living right. in the world. Yeah. And for me, the, the challenge as a pastor, A, in my own personal walk with Christ and the people that I engage with, <clears throat> excuse me, is... Um, that for some of us, the resurrection of Jesus is a concept. It's not a reality. If it's not a reality, Paul says we're the biggest fools to have ever bit the line. Mm-hmm. We have a hook in our mouth and we're being dragged away from God. And so the challenge is not just to say, you know, give the holy harumph when we say Jesus is raised from the dead. You have to base your life on that truth. And I think if I may interpret culture... One of the reasons that the church has lost traction in the minds of the world is we're not living out the reality of the resurrection. We're proclaiming it and singing it and assenting yeah. to it, but it's not the reality it should be. I, I think back, if I may, to Pilate's question to Jesus, what is truth? I challenge you to read that this week. See what Jesus did with that. Because he based it on what he was about to do. Mm-hmm. He didn't get into an argument with him on everything he said. Mm-hmm. He basically said, watch. And then he was raised from the dead. End of game, set match, point for Jesus. Now we have to live in that truth. And that's where the worldview comes out. Coming to church and believing what church people believe doesn't change reality. Living out the resurrection changes 
every component of who you are and every engagement you have with people. Chad, one of the questions we pose, and as questions are coming in, and I appreciate the questions I'm receiving. I'm not checking my fantasy scores if you wonder why I have my phone, okay? <laughs> just, just want to clarify that for the skeptics. Um, Maybe in I'll check those at 11, different. okay? Uh, can I be confident in the truth without being certain of everything about it? Yeah, this, this is kind of a, a misconception that people have about religious faith in general. Um, there's, there's, this, there's this idea that, that exists out there that religious faith is believing in God um, regardless of the facts or in the absence of evidence or in the absence of facts. So you have, you have these two forces pitted against each other. You have people of faith over here that believe without any evidence, without any real reasons. And then you have rational people over here, scientific people over here who have certainty, mm-hmm. um, which is nonsense, by the way. It's just nonsense. Because every single person that you've ever met and that you ever will meet lives their lives by some sort of faith. Let me just give you a very quick illustration of this. Very, very quick. Um, The the whole process of, of getting sick and getting better is a process that, believe it or not, requires a great amount of faith. Now, it's reasonable faith. It's faith with evidence, but it's faith nevertheless. So when you get sick, when you get the flu or something like that, All you know is that you don't feel right. You know that for sure. You don't feel right. So how do we go about, in our culture, how do we go about feeling better? Well, we go to the doctor. And we go into the doctor's office, and we trust that that doctor will know how to fix us. Why? Well, the doctor is wearing a white coat. The doctor has uh, a piece of paper on the wall. Now, we don't know. He could have printed out that piece of paper an hour before, um, but we trust that that piece of paper on the wall that his, his diploma shows that he has completed medical school, and we don't know, was he a D student, was he an A student, we don't know, but he's completed medical school, and so probably knows about what's wrong with me. And so we sit down on the doctor's table on the crinkly paper thing, and he says, open your mouth, say, ah. And you're like, the problem is in my belly, but I guess I'll play along, I'll open my mouth. And, and then he says, well, let me look in your ears. And I'm like, again, you're not getting closer, okay? You're getting further away. But okay, go ahead, look in my ears. And after sitting down with the doctor for just a couple minutes, the doctor says, well, here's the thing. You have these microscopic organisms that have invaded your body. You can't see them. Don't bother to look for them. But you've got to trust me on this. You have these microscopic organisms that have invaded your body and who have made you sick. Like, okay, I believe you. Let me write out a prescription. So he gets out his prescription pad, writes out this incoherent gibberish on a, that nobody can read, writes it down on this piece of paper. He says, take this piece of paper to the pharmacy. They'll give you some, some medicine. You'll get better. So you, take, you obediently take the piece of paper to the pharmacy. You meet another person with a white coat. You trust that, that he knows what he's doing. Comes back with this bottle of pills. You don't, now that you actually know what they are, you realize you can't pronounce it anyway. Um, but it kind of sounds Latin, so it might be okay. So you put, these, you put these pills in your body. You don't know what's in them, but you trust that there's something in these pills that will defeat the microscopic organisms that have invaded your body. And sure enough, the next morning you feel a little bit better. Now, we think that whole process is what? Medical, mm-hmm. scientific. It's all about the facts, right? But you realize you've taken definitive, intentional steps of faith along the entire process. Mm-hmm. You've trusted in the process. Every single person, the most rational, scientific person that you've ever met, lives by some sort of faith in their life on a daily basis. So we come back to this question, how much certainty must I have with faith? There's, there's a, a verse that I, I'm going to hustle through it. 
but it's a verse that um, most of you are familiar with, probably, in Hebrews chapter 11, where uh, the author of Hebrews says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, we kind of abuse that verse because it talks about certainty, surety. First of all, I think that's a bad translation. I think a better translation would be that faith is the evidence of what we hope for and the substance of what we do not see, but we'll cover that on another day. If you look at the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, these examples of faith running throughout that entire chapel, chapter, you have to ask yourself the question, did these individuals have absolute definitive certainty on everything that they believed about God? No. They, they didn't see it. They didn't experience it in their lives immediately. But they trusted God. They trusted God even when they couldn't see. And here's, here's the thing that I run into all the time with people and with students. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Absolute, ironclad certainty. I don't have to have faith that this stool is supporting me. Okay? The, but, but I run into religious people all the time that are just freaked out by doubts and questions that they might have about faith. And what I want to tell them is, you don't have to be scared of your questions. You don't have to be scared of, of these doubts that creep in. You need, to, you need to, to come to see them as an open door, an avenue leading you closer to the truth, where you can explore the, the, the fullness and the richness of God through those doubts and through those questions that you might have. Um, there's nothing about truth that requires certainty. That's a lie that we are told in our culture today, that you can't really believe anything is true unless you have ironclad certainty. Listen, we're not God. Mm -hmm. We don't have a God's eye view on any truth, okay? Um, But yet we can have confidence, just like these heroes of the faith in in Hebrews chapter 11. We could have confidence in the truth, even if we don't have always absolute 100% certainty. Yeah, that's, I'm just amening over here, trying not to make too much noise in the microphone. It's just so true. And I think about specifically uh, Genesis 1. The first, the first temptation was to eat from the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. And I think part of what's going on there is this, we have a desire to know completely just exactly what you said, because we want to be God. We want to be able to put our heads on our pillows at the end of the night, having all of our questions answered so that we can rest easy. And that's just not, that's just not what being human is. If, if, you, if you're 100% certain about everything, then you're probably, you know, you're, you're deceiving yourself a little bit. Yeah. And so for those of you out there who, who are bothered by your questions, don't be bothered by them. They're, they're, they're not a problem. They're an opportunity. One of the questions that came in that is corollary to what we're talking about here, and it's a great question, and there's several that are coming in. Uh, the question is, what does it mean then to live out the resurrection? I open that can. Yeah, I, I almost interrupted you to say one thing. And I love that thought because I think, and I would even say, our lives shouldn't make sense apart from the resurrection. So take, I'll just give you one example, and if you want to build on it or say others, great. Forgiveness. Forgiving somebody who does you wrong. Mm. That doesn't actually make any sense. And I know we talk about the psychological benefit of forgiveness, and to some extent that's true, but there are certain situations in which forgiveness just absolutely doesn't make sense. Or loving your enemies, right? Mm. Or choosing to die for any number of reasons when you could prevent your own death. But we'll just sort of keep it on forgiveness. This piece of, I'm going to, you know, not hold this person responsible for the things they've done me wrong. Why? Well, because we believe in the resurrection. Because we believe that we are okay eternally. I will be taken care of 
Therefore, I don't have to watch my own back. I don't have to, be, uh, I don't have to engage the world from a self-protective standpoint because I know that ultimately my existence is entirely secure. Jesus' resurrection means that my resurrection will take place, which means I don't have to protect myself. Am I making sense of what I'm saying? So in that sense, when people look at you and go, you're crazy for forgiving that person for what they did, you're allowed to say, you know what, you're right. And this, what I'm doing does not make any sense unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. But if he did, then it does. Well, That's just one of many. And this, this connects to the question that we were just talking about too. Yes. How can I live a life of faith when I have questions? Yeah. How can I live a life of faith when there's certain seasons that I go through where God seems he feels distant to me? Um, how do I live a life of faith yeah. when my life is kind of unraveling, when, when I'm, I'm getting hurt, when, when my loved ones are getting sick? How, how do I continue to walk this walk of faith um, like the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? How do I do that uh, uh, throughout the various seasons of my life? And to me, it, it always comes back to the reality of the resurrection that, that we have experienced and that we know the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and because of that, it gives us confidence even when sometimes it feels like we're walking in the dark, it gives us confidence mm-hmm. because we know that he is overcome. Yeah. Because we, we know that. And, and even when I don't feel that way, and that's why we have, to, we have to have this series about getting our minds right. Even when I don't feel that way, I know. Yeah. I know the truth. And that truth gives me confidence. And let me just say this, too. Um, some of you might be struggling today with questions about faith. And I want, I want to tell you that that's okay. Yes, it is. Because my God is a God of truth, and I believe that the passionate, um, honest search for truth will lead you closer to God. You don't have to be afraid of your questions. However, I will caution you in this. Some people grow to really love their questions mm-hmm. to such an extent that they will use their questions as a smokescreen or as a protective device that keeps God at a distance. Don't use your questions. Don't use your doubts to keep God at a distance. Use your questions to lead you closer to God. Um, ha- have the confidence in him to pursue that truth. One of the questions that came in that I want to just uh, tell you where we're headed, uh, we've had a couple questions throughout this series about suffering. Uh, how can God be good when bad things happen to good people? Uh, I want you to know we're going to answer that in a message on Sunday morning and in a greater extent on a Wednesday night when Chad's going to come talk about something called theodicies. Where is God when it seems to be all falling apart? So great question. We'll talk about it later. Does that work? (laughs) If it doesn't, we're still going to talk about it later, all right? Okay. Uh, Michael. Yeah. uh, A couple of questions that we posed that we kind of wrap up this morning. Sure. Are all truth claims equal? And what's at stake if that's true or not true? Yeah, great, great question. It really gets to the heart of it again. And the, f- the first thing I think I would want to say to that is no, nobody really lives like that. Nobody really thinks that all truth claims are equal. For instance, as of yeah, Friday night, I now believe to my core that the best taste in the universe is the Cineyum Cupcake at Cupcakes by Liz. Now, I don't discriminate <laughs> if you work for Small Cakes or some other sort of, you know, whatever, dessert place. My wife's got me hooked on these things. And the Cineyum Cupcake is, I've never put anything in my mouth before. So I believe <laughs> it is the best taste in the universe. No, but, so, but I would never suggest that that truth claim is on par with, I believe that my wife will be faithful to me. 
And I don't think anybody else would either. Or I believe, you know, in, in, contra- in contra- contradiction to my two uh, fellows here, that the Cardinals are a superior baseball club to the Cubs. <laughs> but at the end of the day, and, you know, we play on that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, though, what's at stake? And here, here's the way I would answer the question. The answer to the first one is the answer to the, que- is the second one. What's at stake? Well, it depends on the truth claim. What's at stake in a claim about a baseball club? Well, not much at all. What's at stake in about the, you know, the taste of a certain food? Not much at all. Uh, well, the only thing that's going to harm is your taste buds won't receive as much pleasure, you know? But what's at stake um, when it comes to the question of God? And so the point I think I want to make, if I could say it clearly, is what is at stake is determined by the question that we're asking about truth. Does that make sense? So when we're saying, what's at stake when it comes to the question of God? Well, either he is or he isn't. And if he is, either he is a certain way or he isn't a certain way. For instance, let me, let me make, be more specific. God is our judge. That we will all answer to God for the things that we've done in the body. And we will receive either reward or punishment for, for our behaviors. If that is true, then, then, then it has massive consequences for eternity. If it is not true, it has a different set of consequences for eternity. And here's where I think, I know I really struggle with, and I've got some other things, but I'll just say the main point, and then, and then we'll do what we've done for the sake of time. The thing that I, that it's, okay, if you were to talk to someone, I think our culture in a lot of ways is like, is like a teenage boy who drives a car really fast. For instance, if you were to talk to some kid that said to you, I, I, I don't think it's dangerous for me or anyone else for me to drive 100 miles an hour down range line. And if you were to say to that person, that's foolish. And they would say to you, how can you say it's foolish? I've been doing it every day now for three months straight and nothing has gone wrong. We all look at that situation and we realize that yet you may not have hit the fan yet, right? But eventually it will. You may not have proven to be dangerous to yourself or to someone else, but if you continue driving 100 miles an hour down range line, eventually you are going to be proved wrong and you are going to discover that this is in fact a dangerous thing to do, deathly so. And similarly, the difficulty with, with, with the Christian faith is that, that our beliefs, I was going to say so many of them, you might even say all of them in some sense, but at the very least, so many of them point to eternity as being the place when we're going to discover what was at stake. And that's hard for people, right? Because we have here and now, and we're not living in eternity right now, so it seems like so far off, and therefore I can push it away. And I just want to say, like, the end is coming, the death rate is still 100%, you and I are going to die, eventually our story is going to come to a close, and at that point we'll discover that there was quite a bit at stake. So that's really only one example, and we could even talk more about how much is at stake in this life in terms of our own joy or in terms of our own impact on other people and those kind of things. But I think that for, for our purposes, that would probably set us up okay, yeah? Yep. As we've looked at some of these issues, as you can see, we're building this model over the uh, months of September and October. Uh, it's, it's vital that we ask big questions, and yet today we're going to talk about this concept of truth. Uh, it's, it's debated today. Truths are being presented all the time, tested and untested. And what we're trying to do is remember that Corinthian passage of taking it captive, every thought to Jesus Christ, and finding out what is valuable and invaluable, what is truth and not truth. And so uh, I want to reintroduce these guys to you if you're visiting, especially so you know which one's talking at which time. To my far right uh, is Michael DeFazio, and in the middle is Chad Ragsdale. And both of these guys have been valuable resources for me. I appreciate their friendship, and I said this, and I'll say this all morning long because it's, it's a value to me. They're highly educated, thoughtful, uh, I can call them young men because I'm so much older than both of them, but what I love about both these guys is they love the church, and sometimes when you get 
the more you learn, the more we can become cynical about the everyday existence. But these guys love our church. They serve our church well, and I'm very appreciative of both of them. So glad to, to be working with them this morning. And as, as uh, these questions come in, uh, we want to encourage you, use the phone number, uh, ask the questions that you want answered. If we can't answer them this morning, uh, we will hold them till Wednesday night, and we'll bring them in Wednesday night. We promise you uh, that that's what we want to do, and we want to have some good feedback and interaction. So the big question of the morning is, it was asked of Jesus by Pilate uh, on the night that Jesus was murdered. Uh, the question was asked, what is truth? So Chad, it's a simple question. Simple question. What is truth? <laughs> easy. Um, it seems like it should be easy, something like truth. It seems like it should be really easy to talk about, really easy to define. Um, but really, it's, it's kind of a tricky, kind of a slippery word to, to get a hold of. What, what exactly do we mean when we talk about something being true? Um, and one of the things that makes it complicated is that... Um, there's really three major kinds of truth that we, um, that we come across and that we talk about on a daily basis. So let me just very, very briefly um, talk about these three major different kinds of truth. One kind of truth, you might call it situational or circumstantial truth. Um, things that are true in one circumstance or one situation, but they might not be true in every situation. Like, for instance, uh, to say it is proper to drive on the right-hand side of the road. It's, it's a situational truth because it may be true uh, right now as we go in the parking lot and leave this place, but it may not be true in another context in another culture. It's proper to drive on the right-hand right side of the road. Then you have what we might call subjective truths or emotional truths. Um, and these are truths like, uh, you know, my favorite color is blue. It's, it's true for me, but it may not be true for you. It may be true for you, but maybe not. Um, it's, it's true to myself. And, and there are some truths in our lives, some very important truths in our lives that fall within this category. Truths like, I love my wife and she loves me. These are very important truths in my life, but they're, they're subjective truths. They're truths to me. And then the third category of truth is what, what we might call objective truths or, or something that conforms to the nature of reality. Something that is true for me, but it's also true for you because it exists outside of each of us. Something like, I'm sitting on top of this stool right now. Okay? It is true to reality. It's true regardless of your opinion of it. It's true that I'm sitting on this stool. So you have these three different types of truth. Um, now, the tricky thing is, when it comes to truths about God, when it comes to truths about faith, the culture that you and I live in, and we, we, fall, we fall prey to this, often, um, the culture that we live in would really love to assign religious and faith truths to the first two categories. So you'll hear things like, well, the only reason that you're a Christian is because you grew up in a Christian home, or the only reason that you're a Christian is because you grew up in the Bible belt going to church. It's nothing more than a circumstantial or a situational truth in your life. Uh, or other people will say, you know, Believe in God, that's great, that's fantastic, terrific, but it's just your opinion. It's just you, you feel a certain way about God, and I feel something, I, I have a different truth in my life, so you have this truth, and I have this truth, and, and let's just all agree that neither one of us knows what's really true. We're just, God is kind of more of an emotional or more of a feeling uh, type of truth. Um, 
and, and listen, there are things about God that are situational. There are things about belief in God that are deeply subjective, the way that, the way that I feel when I worship. It's an important part of, of my experience with God. But what we really want to argue this morning, or maybe argue is the wrong word, what, what we really want to, 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 to establish this morning is that there are certain things that we believe. Things like God created the heavens and the earth, created men and women in his image, Jesus lived, died under Pontius Pilate, and was raised the third day. There are things that you and I believe, or many of us believe, that are objective truths. They, they exist historically in reality. They're not just subjective emotional truths. They're not just situational truths. They actually are true to reality itself. And that's really what we're trying to establish, um, not just this morning, but throughout this entire series, um, that the truths that we declare are that type of substantial truth. Yeah, and I, every time I hear you explain that, it becomes more and more helpful. And really the only thing I'd add is uh, this is the kind of thing where we need, we need to feel the freedom and, and even the, in terms of friendship with other people, the responsibility to ask people questions of their worldview in the same way that they ask them of ours. And I know a lot of times, um, you know, people will ask you questions and you'll give them an answer and they'll say, why do you think that? And you may not be able to say anything, anything other than, well, I just, I, just, I just do, that's what I believe. Or maybe you say, well, the Bible teaches this. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I think the Bible tells the truth. And they're pointing out that you assume certain things and you, are, you argue or you reason on the basis of those things. And that sometimes makes us look bad. But I think what, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is everybody does that. And so, for instance, when somebody says to you, that's just your opinion, that would be an appropriate time, not punkishly, but gently, and, and in terms of the way the conversation's going, saying, why do you assume that? Like, why do you think that this is just an opinion? And really, the only reason why most people think that is what, you ju- what he just said. For the last couple hundred years, that's what our culture as a whole has believed, is that religion only belongs in the subjective and in the circumstantial categories, but not the objective category. And we're allowed to say, Why? Uh, because throughout most of history, that, that's not how, um, you know, the Christianity would have been, would have thought of itself, and certainly other religions would have thought of themselves as well. And I want to throw out this, this word of caution, too, because the cultural air that we breathe kind of trains us to think about God and to think about faith in a particular way, sometimes in, in very inappropriate ways or unhelpful ways. And so I want to caution us to, to be careful of turning our faith into a situational or circumstantial mm-hmm. type of truth where it's true for us on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night, yep. but it, not, it doesn't necessarily have the same type of truth for us on Monday or on Tuesday. Or to turn our faith into this subjective type of religious experience that I feel a certain way about God or God makes me feel a certain way and, it's, and, and we, turn, we turn our faith into really an emotional sort of thing. And there clearly is an emotional component of our faith. But what, again, what we're advocating is there, there, has to be this, there has to be this foundation to our faith where these things are true regardless of how I feel about them on a day-to-day basis. That Jesus is risen from the dead, and that's not just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that, that happened in reality in history. And so the application for, for you and I, and, and I want to defend these two guys, the three of us don't stand on the stage today so we can tell you what is the truth and then you go out more informed. This is not a, a step that we're, we're trying to give you a fact of information. What we're trying to do is challenge every single one of us. And I want to just begin with my life. Uh, how many things that I have grown up believing were true and would be proven true over time that I've discovered weren't? Things the world promised me. If I had more money, I'd be happier. 
If, if I accomplished something where people thought well of me, then I would find satisfaction. And so I, it's revealed to me every day. The truth reveals itself. The truth will come out, and it will always triumph over the lie. And the truth is revealed through Jesus, through the testimony, through the revelation of God. So our challenge here, and I want to be really crystal clear as we begin this morning, is we're not trying to just simply say, we have the truth and accept it from us. Every one of us has to journey in this revelation of God and seek from the things of God what real truth is. And we're going to talk about some of the implications of that over these three hours, and even more specifically on Wednesday night. So this isn't a commercial to get you to come back. It's to have you understand that you cannot rely on experts to reveal or to accept the things that are being revealed to you by God, uh, if I can say it in such an obtuse way. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Uh, I'll, tr- I'll do better next time. All right. <laughs> Second question. Uh, Michael, we'll start with you. Yeah. Is it fair that some have the truth and others don't, or why do some have it and others don't? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question, and I'm going to try to be careful not to take out the rest of our time on it. I'll just say, uh, really, I think I want to make two primary points, and then you guys can fill in the gaps or bring any other elements out that are important or correct anything I say that isn't true. Um, but when it comes to this question, it's, um, before I give you my two things, it's, 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 it's an increasingly popular question, and that's a good thing, I think. Um, now, we're not the first ones to think like this. Sometimes we think, well, we're aware of the landscape and the world. We know that there are other religions, and so it's impossible for us to just close, close our eyes to the rest of the world. Maybe in the first century, maybe in the ancient times, it was easier for them just to accept it. We know more than they did. And the first thing I want to say is, well, they knew of other things as well, and yet they believed, no, we've got the truth. So they had the same problem we do, so what do you do with the problem? And I think two points. One is... Um, When it comes to the question of why don't all people have access to the truth, first thing to say is all people do have access to some of the truth. Paul's actually pretty clear about this, that God has not left himself without a witness anywhere and everywhere. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans 1. I just want to read a couple of verses from Romans to you. Um, And this is is the place in Scripture where Paul most clearly says, uh, no, like everybody has uh, some understanding of God. And so here's what it says, verse, uh, verse 18 of, actually starting in verse 19 of uh, chapter 1. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Picking up in verse 20, so Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the first thing to notice is that all people do have access to some level of truth. But in context, Paul's argument is actually that that's not necessarily good news for them. Because the very next thing he says is, so that people are without excuse. And then going on, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, so on and so forth. So we all, everybody everywhere has some access to the truth about God. But the reality is we've all rejected it. And so it's not just that if everybody knew all would be well. No, everybody knows a certain amount and we've all pushed back on it. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is, of course, then there's this gospel message that Jesus has done something about this universal problem, that his death and resurrection have saved us. Why don't all people have that? Why don't all people know the name of Jesus? And I don't know in this case if I can really sort of answer the why don't they question, but I do think I can answer the what is God doing about it question. And I think part of the answer to that is God has decided that we would be the way in which other people get to hear about him. 
So for instance, you may you know, take, take an unnamed country, you know, take country A and continent B. So take this, there's this country in Africa, let's say, where nobody knows the name of Jesus. Why? Well, maybe because a couple generations ago, God called on a few people to go and take the gospel to that place, but they actually didn't go. And so the reason they don't know the, know the name of Jesus is because those who God specifically designed to send there rejected that, that commission, rejected that opportunity. And so it becomes imperative for us to become the answer to the question. If we have a problem with the fact that certain people don't know the name of Jesus, I think that having that problem may in fact be God calling us to do something about it. We may not ourselves get up and go, but perhaps we can find opportunities to send others to these places and those kind of things. I think there's a reason why Paul says how beautiful, and Isaiah before him say, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And there's this picture of this message of life coming to a place where life wasn't. And so again, two things to this question are, One, we do all have access to some truth, but we all do the wrong thing with it. And two, you and I are actually God's answer to this question. He has called us to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to everywhere, to all the peoples on the earth. And uh, so that's how I just started. What would you add? A couple things. Uh, It's a great response. Uh, It's a tough question. Um, But but there's two things that that I would add to it. The first thing is, the question does not give us a license to ignore or reject the truth that we've received. Mm, good point. Um, so take, take for instance, um, you know, we know, we know what causes certain illnesses um, in, in, in our context with our medical uh, expertise and knowledge. We know that, but people in other cultures, they may, they may not know that. Mm. They may not have access to that same medical knowledge. Well, simply because that is the unfortunate reality doesn't mean then that we should question the truth or the knowledge that we have. Um, it's an unfortunate reality, but if we shouldn't use that as an excuse to ignore or to reject the truth. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that I would say. What are you going to do with Jesus? Uh, what are you going to do with the truth of Jesus in, in this knowledge of truth that you've received? Um, the second thing that I would say is, I think there's a part of this where we've got to remember about the justice and the righteousness of God. And, and we've got to learn to trust God in his perfect judgment, in his perfect righteousness. And there's a part of this question that, honestly, it's, it's a dilemma that has faced theologians and scholars for quite some time, really forever. And there's a part of it where we have to release this to God and say, God, in his perfect righteousness and his perfect judge, justice, um, will do what is perfectly right and will do what is perfectly just. Amen. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that you say that question right there, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I think about that story in Abraham where that specific question is mm-hmm. asked. And Abraham, you know, when God calls Abraham, he says, and I've even seen you draw this on, you drew this on the board for us uh, on one Wednesday night a while back, that you have this universal goal of God to reach all people, but then it starts with this one man mm-hmm. in order to fan out like this. And so what I hear you saying is sometimes we can't, you know, we can't necessarily know why God did it a certain way, but based on what we know of him, we trust that the way he's doing it is the best way. Yeah? Yeah. Good. Uh, we're getting some phenomenal questions. You guys better buckle up. Good. Um, Good. Here, I'm not checking my fantasy football team yet. <laughs> okay. Third hour. Third hour. Still going to start the Bears defense. That's all I know. Uh, so, guys, I'm going to interject a question here that I think is yeah. part and parcel of what we just discussed. Is there only one truly Christian worldview, or are there a number of different worldviews informed by Christianity at different levels? You know what? Since he's the expert, let me start, and then he can fix whatever I say wrong. 
And I'm not going to try to answer the whole question, but because um, the, the question is sort of b- yes to both. You know what I mean? There is sort of a core of Christian, basic Christian doctrine, and then it certainly looks different in different cultures. And way, the way in which I would, I would picture this is if you could imagine, um, you know, concentric circles. So imagine with me, we don't have a whiteboard, I guess, but three circles. So here's a little circle, middle circle, big circle. And I look at various Christian doctrines and beliefs oftentimes and where they fit on this. And in the middle is that core of doctrines that make up the center of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. God is triune. The Bible is trustworthy. Humanity is sinful and in need of redemption. The church is a core part of God's plan. All these things that are the core. And then you have in this middle section things that are important, but they're not necessarily essential, right? Like different end times views or whether we sit in pews or seats or what kind of clothes we wear to church. And then you have other stuff that just doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? What should the color of the carpet be? That kind of thing. So most questions that we would arise would fall into one of those middle two categories, and I would say a a good start to answering this question begins by saying, what's at the core? Because there are certain beliefs and practices that make up the core of of the Christian worldview, the core of Christianity, and those must always be present in order for it to be a legitimately Christian worldview, but as it finds itself in different language um, settings and different cultural settings and different time settings, it's going to look different in some of the particulars. Yeah, Yeah, no, I, I would echo that, Absolutely. Um, there is a core central truth um, that defines or describes what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we find is, you know, the Christian faith uh, is incarnated in various cultural yeah. settings, even within this country. And so th- there's, there's various, you know, you can go to different churches this morning and there will be different worship expressions, different uh, ways of doing things, different ways of saying things. But the central core truth is what unites us as a part of this Christian worldview. Let me also add this one point, too. I'm going to let what you say just speak for it. But I want to add this other point, that within Western cultures, both in Europe and in North America, you have what what I've come to call front porch Christians. Um, And what that means is you think of a front porch of a house. The front porch of a house is neither inside the house nor outside of the house. And you have a lot of people who claim, I'm not really a Christian, or maybe I am a Christian, but I don't really, I'm not really living it, I'm not really a follower of Jesus, um, or maybe even I don't even believe anymore, but yet they, they live within a cultural climate, a cultural context where the Christian worldview is still assumed. And so that's why you could have agnostic or atheistic people who live in a North American context, who the, the assumptions yeah. that they live their lives by, if they actually pause to think about it, if they pause to reflect on it, many of the assumptions that they have about life are really Christian assumptions because that's kind of the cultural climate that that we live in. And so I've come to call them front porch Christians. They're not all the way in, but neither are they all the way out. Um, And so they've um, implicitly adopted some of the truths of a Christian worldview. Well, you even think about some of the things we're talking about in this series with the importance of Community Wednesday, the value of the individual last week, those kind of things. And it's, I like that analogy. And somewhat, would you say that part of what's happening in our day is the porch is shrinking? Oh, and this is yeah. making us nervous, but at the same time, it's not that, that Christianity is actually any less strong. It's just that there may be less people on the porch because the culture is yeah. becoming less, you know, sort of halfway yeah. uh, Christian. That's a good yeah. analogy. I like that. Christianity, if I may... Um, make assumptions about what I see. Christianity has become uh, a statement that says we're smarter or more educated. 
we're more blessed uh, because we're Christians. And I think we may misunderstand the core of why we're blessed. There is no blessing God has ever given any of us that we're meant, that we're supposed to keep. And so there have been a litany of questions. There's four of them at least that are asking this underground. How do we know that we have the one way? And what about those people who don't know what we know? And so we're, we're off script. Great. I love it. Yeah. So, so here we go. What about the pygmy in Africa? Yeah. Who, the, that's in Bible college. That's always the example. Yeah. What about the yeah. pygmy in Africa who hasn't heard the gospel? Yeah. What happens to him at the end of his life? Yeah. Um, okay. So one thing to keep in mind is what Chad said earlier. The great question. Let's start by recognizing that whatever our answer is to that question, it doesn't negate what we have to do with Jesus. You know what I mean? And so let me, um, let me think about how best order to do this. I'm just going to say a few things again, and, and then you're, you, you know what to do. Um, <laughs> when it comes to this question of, uh, of what about this, you know, pygmy in Africa, so to speak, I think we got to start with what we know from the scriptures. We know that no one will be saved except through Jesus. Uh, you can write down Acts 4.12. You can write down John 14.6, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. We know that that's true. We also know that um, when a person hears the gospel, that there's a div- dividing, actually there's a, Jesus used the image of a sword in his own ministry, there's a dividing that happens. Once you hear, you're now accountable to what you've heard. Um, we know that the only way to be confident of being saved is to have heard the gospel, right, and to have responded positively to it, and we know that God will do in the end whatever is the right thing to do. What does that mean for this, this person that we don't know of? Well, um, I don't want to cop out. And I'm fine answering the question in more detail, but I think we start with those truths and recognize that what we know of them is that God will do the right thing with them. Whether that means reaching them through a dream in a way that we're not even aware of, whether that means um, uh, any number of different things, we can trust him. But again, the, um, the, the thing to come back to is, well, what, what, what are we going to do with Jesus? Because the reason why in the first part of the question, how do we know that we have the truth when this other person doesn't have any access to it, is it all comes down, this is what I love about Christianity, and this is why we're sitting up here. I'm not here because I'm some sort of a philosopher that was able to, you know, mine the depths of of the nature of truth. I'm here because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the central truth for us. And so the, the reason why I sit where I sit is not because I feel like I have sufficient answers to all the questions I ask, but because I think that I can't disprove the resurrection. And when it comes to this, you know, you, you, when, you're, when you're judging, this is what, you know, you look at other faiths and there's not necessarily something to point back to. Buddhism doesn't give you something to point back to like the resurrection to know whether or not it's true. Christianity does. And so um, the resurrection becomes the most important question, which I believe because I think that it's the best explanation of the evidence. You can't deny the fact that Jesus died and then was put in the tomb and then the tomb was empty. You have to explain that fact somehow. And you can't deny the fact that the Christian church exists, which means a bunch of us who are probably mostly Gentile gathered together on a Sunday, not on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, which is what God said his people would always worship him by. A bunch of people gather on a Sunday and we take communion, which is sort of this symbolic cannibalism, which would have been incredibly offensive to any Jewish person. And we do this as we worship the God of Israel. So you just, it wouldn't make any sense unless something significant happened on that first Easter morning, and you go through all of the options that people have presented as to what may have happened, and I think, as crazy as it sounds, the resurrection is actually the least crazy one. I think it's true. Yeah, I, I think we, we shouldn't allow this, this question, as important and, and good as this question is, we shouldn't allow this question to distract us away from 
the central tenet of our faith, which is the historical embodied resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and, and that, that really, that has to provide the framework for answering this question, that this isn't just a philosophy, this isn't just a feeling or an emotion, it's something historically um, that happened. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we, we stake our lives to that, um, to that claim. And this is a softball for me as a pastor of a local congregation. Uh, I'm scared of the number of people I encounter, and even days of my own life, where I believe theoretically that the resurrection is important, but it's made no impact on my personal walk. If the resurrection doesn't change your language, your behavior, your ethics, if it doesn't change your hands and feet, you don't believe in the resurrection. You believe in what the church has told you about it. You can believe in the value of something, and then you can invest in the value of something. So there are, I've just counted them, four questions that are asking if we really believed that we had the truth, and the truth was in Jesus Christ's resurrection, revealing that there is not a multiple ways of truth that save you, but only through the blood of Christ. And I believe that. If that is true... That will, re- that will change our realities. We will live differently. We will invest differently. Why we live and how we live and where we live and the calling on our life, as, as Michael mentioned earlier, those are not things that we would hand off to other people. Uh, we would live them out yeah. tangibly. And last hour, we used the expression, you would live the resurrection. And someone asked us the question, how do you live the resurrection? There's a calling on each one of us to demonstrate, not with great pride and arrogance, but to demonstrate the hope of the gospel, to be the blessing that we've been blessed with. Mm -hmm. That's when the truth becomes real. Because you can know the truth. Every one of us knows a truth and denies it. And so this resurrection moment, for those of you asking these questions, and we'll go in greater length. I've Mm -hmm. I've marked them for Wednesday night. We'll go in greater length, and we'll expose Michael without Chad. It'll be awesome. (laughs) But we're going to go deeper and talk about what the truth looks like in a tangible way. But another question that's come in light of that, uh, Chad, I want to throw to you. Yeah. Uh, it's back on script. <laughs> How do we hold on to the truth without being obnoxious? Yeah. Well, and, and if we could back up before we go forward real quick, you know, the previous question, in a lot of ways, the answer to the previous question is the church. Mm-hmm. The previous question about those people that yeah. haven't heard. Yeah. I mean, read the New Testament. The answer to that question is the church. Yeah. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Yeah, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all, of all nations. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Um, God, in his wisdom, invested the church with the gospel, invested us with the gospel to be stewards of the gospel, not to keep it, but to share it. And so the answer to that question, we could, we could wring our hands and say, well, what about those people who have never heard? And God is revealing himself in visions, in dreams. Right. 40% of all Muslims who come to Christ today come to Christ because of a vision or a dream. God is revealing himself in those ways. But at the end of the day, God has given his church, his people, this mission to the world. And so the question that we have to confront ourselves with is, are we living out that mission? Are we being stewards of the gospel to, to make the gospel known to all those who have never heard it? Um, but to, to go back to the question, that you, how do you hold on to truth without being obnoxious? I think, I think many people in our culture and many people in our lives, they have an aversion to the truth or they don't like the truth mostly 
because of the attitude in which we, with which we hold it. Mm. Um, so, so they're offended not necessarily by the truth claim. They're offended mostly by the way in which we hold or present the truth. Um, and and part, of that, part of that offense is really their issue, not as much, but part of it is the way that we hold on to the truth. And I want to just share quickly a few different verses that I think can, can help us with this. Um, and the first one is actually from John chapter 1, and then the other ones will kind of be uh, uh, elaborating on this point. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, really important verse, says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. We typically focus on the first part of this verse because the first part of this verse talks about the mystery of, of what theolo- theologians call the incarnation, that God made his dwelling among us, took on flesh. But we miss the last part of the verse. The last part of the verse says, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The last part of the verse describes the, the manner in which Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. I'll return to that in a second. Next verse I want to look at is in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul is instructing the Ephesian church um, about unity in Christ, really, is is the context of Ephesians 4. And he says, Speaking the truth in love, we will all, in all things, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So just keep that phrase in your mind. Speaking the truth in love. And then the last verse is in Colossians, um, chapter 4. Let me find it here. Uh, let, verse 6. Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And here's my very simple point. The manner in which Jesus came into the world is also the manner in which we go out into the world. Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And guys, I'm going to tell you, that is a difficult balance to find. To advocate the truth on one hand, to be resolute in the truth, that these things are true, whether I feel it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you have a difference of opinion, these things still are truth. Jesus Christ still is Lord. Jesus Christ still rose from the dead. Even on my darkest of the darkest days, that still is true. And you need to know that it's true. And so I want to go into the world full of that truth, but I've also got to go into the world full of grace. Full of grace. Showing not just the truth of Christ, but also the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. Not holding on to truth arrogantly, mean-spiritedly, but holding on to the truth that is a gracious truth. Um, uh, The the word truth in in Ephesians, in that passage I word in Ephesians, it's actually a verb. We truth in grace. So Christian truth is not, is not Christian if it's not seasoned with grace. Sometimes I like this. It's, it's an Indian proverb. Um, heard an apologist share it one time that it's no use cutting off a man's nose and then asking him to smell a rose. And sometimes that's what we do with the gospel, don't we? We cut off people's noses with, with a very harsh, arrogant truth and then we try to share the love of Jesus with him. Oh, but Jesus loves you. God loves you. I don't, but Jesus does, you know. Um, and it's just, we need to, to develop this balance between grace on the one hand and truth on the other. Is there really a guiding truth or principle, or we're going to talk about this morning? Is there a core group of values that are undeniably applicable to every human being who's ever lived? 
Uh, it's really a big, big question. Uh, if you don't know, I'd like to, to I've introduced them uh, without their presence, so I'll identify which is which. To my far right is Michael DeFazio, uh, who is a professor at Ozark Christian College, and Chad Ragsdale's in the middle here. Uh, I rely on both of these guys very much. They are uh, good advisors and counselors when it comes to uh, sermon series and ideas. I like to bounce ideas off of them and have them respond from their insight. But I, I've said this all three services because it's very important for me to say this to you. Not only are they intelligent, well-schooled young guys because they're younger than me. Not by much, but they are. Uh, not only are they intelligent, thoughtful men, uh, but they love the church. And I don't mean just Christ Church of Ornogo. They love the church. And what they're sacrificing to teach at a Christian college is the ability to invest in a ripple effect of generations that will go out into the church. And I value that very, very much and are very grateful for them. And as I said earlier, we're going to be uh, putting these all together to give you a composite of all three services. But one question we're asking and answering each hour is to draw all of our attention together, which will be a blessing for all of us. Is in a chat, I'll begin with you. What is truth? Seems like it should be an easy question to answer. What is truth? But when you really pause to think about it, when you really pause to reflect on it, um, truth is kind of a slippery word. It's kind of a, a tough word to get a handle on. What exactly do we mean when we say that something is true? Um, and one of the reasons that it's difficult a lot of times is because there's various different types of truths that we encounter or that we believe in on a daily basis. There's at least three different types of truths. Um, one type of truth is what we might call a situational or a circumstantial truth. A truth that it may be true in one instance or in one circumstance, but it's not necessarily true in every circumstance. So, for example, let me give you a really quick example. Um, it is proper to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Uh, certainly in many situations that is true and that is lawful to do that, but in other situations it actually might be against the law to drive on the right side of the road. Circumstantial, situational truth. There's other types of truths that you might call them emotional or, or even subjective truths. And these are truths that it's true for me, uh, but it may not necessarily be true for you in the same way. So for instance, my favorite color is blue. Um, that's true for me, but it may not actually be true for you in the same way. Um, so those are kind of more subjective or they're personal truths. Um, your favorite band, your, 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 uh, uh, your favorite football team, whatever. And some of these subjective truths are actually very, very important, though, to us. You know, like, um, I believe as a, as, a, as a true statement that I, I love my wife and that she loves me. It's true, but it's true to me personally. Uh, but then there's a third kind of truth. Uh, which is a more uh, what we might call objective truth. And these are truths about reality. They're truths that exist outside of my opinion or outside of my perspective, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or the fact that I'm sitting on a stool on this stage. It's true whether you know it or not. It's true whether you agree with it or not. It's just true to reality. And, and the challenge that we face in, in the culture that, that we live in is that when it comes to religious truths, faith truths, what kind of truth is it? And so many people in our world and so many people in our lives, they want to put religious and faith truths only in the first two categories. So you say you believe in God, you say that you believe in Jesus, you say that you're a Christian and all these things. Well, the only reason you believe that is because you grew up in a Christian home or you were born in the Bible belt. It's just a situational truth. You only believe that this is true because of where you are. It's not necessarily true to other people in different situations. Or 
um, they talk about faith truths as more subjective truths. Like, well, that's just your opinion. That's just your feeling. Like, you feel a certain way about God or, or, or whatever. And I, that's true for you, but it's not really true for me. And so we, we remove our beliefs about God to the realm of emotion or to the realm of opinion. And there are certain truths about faith and about God that are situational and even subjective. But the position that we are advocating this morning, uh, what, we want to, what we want to strongly commend this morning is, is this idea that there are truths that we believe in. God created the heavens and the earth, created man and women in his image. Jesus of Nazareth lived, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was risen again on the third day. These are truths that are not just situational truths. These are truths that are not just emotional or opinion type truths. These are truths that are objective historical events that happened. Um, the, and, and so we're, we're talking about truth in that realm, in that area. Yeah, and all I do with that is just accent the... Um the, the point you made at the end that we're making the case that, that claims about God, beliefs about God fit all three categories and uh, the accent that I would place on it or add to it is just that there's no good reason, there's no logical reason to kick God out of the third category. You have the situational, you have the subjective, then you have the objective or universal. There's no good reason to say that beliefs about God don't belong in the objective universal category. And most of the people that we, you know, do life with, most of our culture, as Chad said, now for a couple hundred years, just sort of assumes that God and faith belong in those first two sort of more slippery, sometimes, sometimes not, um, uh, compartments of, of this question of truth. And I think one of the most beneficial things we can do in our own journeys as well as helping others is ask, why do you assume that? Why do you assume that beliefs about God belong in the opinion category, in the emotion category? Why should we just assume that beliefs about God don't, don't belong in all three categories? Yeah, together? and if I could just get pastoral really quick for a moment this morning, I, I just really want to encourage you. I mean, this is the accent of this series. This is why we're, we're doing this series, because the, the, the tendency that we have or the temptation that we all have is to turn truths about Jesus, truths about God, into those first two kinds of truths. So our belief in Jesus becomes just a situational belief. And so it's true for us on Sunday morning or maybe Wednesday night, but it's not necessarily as true for us on Monday or on Tuesday. And we kind of turn it into this just situational type truth. Or a lot of times we turn our belief in God into an emotional, subjective sort of response. And we, we, that's why I love this series, Take Every Thought ca- Captive, because there are certain things that are true about God. There are certain things that are true about Jesus that are true regardless of how I'm feeling mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they're, they're true regardless of, of, you know, do I feel close to God? Do I feel far from God? Um, it's, there are parts of our faith that engage our hearts and also our heads. But we've got to be careful that we, that we don't turn our faith into just this subjective feeling or opinion sort of thing. This series, is, as Chad said, is an enabling series. It's really important for me, for you to understand, that I did not ask these two guys to join me on stage this morning so we could give you the seven answers you need to live a successful life. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, we have to equip one another. This is why we gather. To equip one another to become more like Jesus Christ in everything we say, do, and think. And so the challenge is not just simply to come and say, give me the answers. When we ask him, we've laughed. And when we decided, Chad got the short straw. Who answers the question, what is truth? Truth is revealed from creator God. And our quest 
as, as a group of Christians living together in community is to pursue the hard questions, asking what God has revealed about them. Uh, I've been receiving, uh, while they were explaining and defining, I've been receiving questions from you that, have, that are being made. I want you to know I'm not putting in my fantasy football team. I did that between services. And uh, so if I'm doing this, I'm not just uh, checking out. Uh, I want you to know there's some great questions being asked and answered. And I want to remind you again, if they don't get answered here today, we're not going to blow them off. We're going to assemble them, put them together, and come back Wednesday night and go further in depth. But one of the questions that's popped up all three hours this morning is a question that we had ready to go because we felt we needed to answer it. So, Michael, I want to throw it to you. Are all truths, are all truth claims equal? And then the second question to that, what's at stake if they're not? Gosh, yeah, that really cuts to the heart of it. And I don't, I, don't know if any, I don't know if anybody really believes or lives as if all truth claims are equal. Um, you know, if I believe that uh, ice cream is better than brownies, that's a little different than I believe that my wife's not going to cheat on me. You know what I mean? I mean, those two truth claims are very different. And I think that the, the question what's at stake is going to help us reflect on that. So let me jump to that as a way of answering both of them. What's at stake, it depends on the question that we're asking. What's at stake depends upon the truth claim being made. For instance, I now have, a, as of Friday, uh, a Friday evening, probably about 7.30 p.m., I have a new belief, and that's that the Cineum Cupcake at Le Cupcakes by Liz is like the best taste in the entire universe. <laughs> I now believe that. Um, and I'm not hating on small cakes. They're good, too, and all of the rest of you who do, do, do desserts. But I believe that this is true. But it doesn't actually, it's not, not a whole lot at stake, right? The only things at stake is that my taste buds may lose out on a little bit of joy. Um, I believe that this chair is going to hold me. What's at stake in that case is the, you know, the well-being of my physical body. Because if it's not going to hold me, then I'm going to fall down and I'm going to be hurt. Um, so when it comes to God, you, you, if you just sort of, again, look at it, um, I, I guess, logically or objectively or, or from, uh, you just look at it with open eyes, it's going to become fairly obvious that the question of is God real or not, does God judge us or not, is crucially important and therefore not at all equal to other truth claims because of what is at stake. So let's take this question of, is God a judge? Will he judge us on the basis of what we do or don't do in this body? If that's, if that's not true, then nothing is at stake. But if it is true, then there's quite a bit at stake, both in terms of our joy in this life and our joy in the next life. And I think that part of what's difficult about, about evaluating the, um, the truth claims of Christianity is that they're eternal, and so we don't necessarily get the full answer until, until time ends and we enter into eternity. And it's like if you were to talk to somebody who says, I don't think it's dangerous for me to jump off a two-story building. Why do you not think that? Well, because I've done it three times and I'm okay. We're, looking at them, we're going to look at them and you know, say, if you continue to do that, then you're going to find out that you're wrong, that it is, in fact, dangerous to jump out a two-story building. You've just been lucky so far because you haven't reached the point where you have to face the consequence of your belief. Now, for us, the difficulty is we won't necessarily have to face the full consequences of our beliefs until we die or until Jesus comes back or until the story reaches its conclusion, whatever that looks like. But at that moment, our eternity, like where we spend it and how we spend it, is going to be influenced by our beliefs. 
So the answer to the question is, of course not all truth claims are equal. Nobody really believes that. And what's at stake depends on the question. And what is at stake specifically with questions of Christian belief is quite a bit because it's both our present, our eternity, and then you also add in the presence and the eternity of those in whom we come into contact with because whether or not we believe this is true is going to influence whether we tell them about that. So we could keep building it out, but, I, but you get the point. Everything's at stake because we're talking about things that have to do with both time and eternity. Yeah, one of, one of the most common questions that, um, that is out there right now, um, oftentimes asked of us, asked of Christians, is what, what makes you think that your truth over here is any truer or any better or any righter, which isn't a word. Um, making than, up words than, is very fun. Yeah. So just uh, I'm for making up words. Because we, yeah. li- we live in a, a very pluralistic world. You know, we have mm-hmm. the internet at our fingertips. We're, we're exposed to multiple different worldviews every day. And so this question is natural. How do you know that this truth is any yep. better or any uh, more true than other truths? And, um, and I think that that's a, a reflection of the fact that within our culture, we have changed religious belief from talking about something that is independent of us to now we talk about religious belief as a part of us. And so for many people, um, and this, I, I don't mean to belittle the issue, but this works as an illustration. For many people, questions of God are similar to questions of your favorite band. How could you say that I'm wrong about my favorite band? I mean, it's, it's, it's who I like. This is, the, this is the best band to me. You don't have to agree with that, but this is the best band to me. And so they've, they've adopted the same position about God and faith. This is my personal belief system. And so because it's my personal thing, how can you say that you're any more correct than I am? Um, but it's a misunderstanding of what the Christian faith is really saying. The Christian faith is saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and therefore Jesus is Lord. These are historical events that we claim have happened, that have consequence on our lives today. And so it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of emotion. You don't have to agree with it, but it's, it's, not, it's not a matter of subjective truth. It's something that we're claiming happened in reality and therefore calls us to decision. There uh, I'd like to, to ve- develop this a little bit more because all morning long there were four already that have come in this hour asking. There are people that don't want to deal with objective truth because they don't believe it's objective. And if the resurrection is the claim, mm-hmm. and it is, if it's the claim that separates us from every other world religion who, who all have moments of truth, I think that's, that's difficult for a lot of us is we want to write them off as ignorant, unprepared, and not thoughtful. And none of those things can be said. These world religions have lasted because they give people hope. But we state clearly on this stage, we believe with everything of the evidence we have. So what is the objective evidence of the resurrection for people who say you, you want to believe that happened, but you can't prove it? Well, I'll tackle it first, and then you can fill in, fill in the gaps to the service. Let me just say this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the um, distinguishing element, the distinguishing characteristic between our worldview system and virtually every other worldview system. It is the linchpin. Um, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, everything else is futile. It's worthless. There's no reason for us to even be here this morning. This is... 
the issue. This is the distinguishing point, um, which you ought to regard as profoundly good news because it's also something that we can coherently and reasonably talk about and offer answers to. Um, And and I know Michael has some things that that he could say on this, um, but but let me just make a couple of different points why, why we can have confidence in the resurrection. One reason that we could have confidence in the resurrection um, is because, historically speaking, we know that Jesus of, Christ di- Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, and we also know that the tomb was empty three days later. A skeptic has to come up with some way to explain that historical fact away. Um, another thing that we can, I think, take to the bank, obviously, is that we exist as yep. the church. 2,000 years later, in Orinoco, Missouri, um, we sing songs of praise to a Galilean carpenter. That's crazy. Who was crucified in a shameful way on a Roman cross? That's remarkable to me. And it ought to be remarkable. The church is a miracle. And that miracle ought to be remarkable to you every single week. That we come together and we worship um, uh, the Son of God risen from the dead. The fact that we exist, a skeptic has to come up with some way to explain that reality. Can I tell you why most people reject the resurrection, though? It's not because they have great reasons for rejecting the resurrection. They reject the resurrection because they've never met a person who has risen from the dead. So they say the resurrection didn't happen because resurrections don't happen. And so we don't, we don't really engage the issue. We don't really think through, well, are there really good reasons for thinking about the resurrection? We just discount it. We just assume that it didn't happen. Um, and the illustration that I always like, like to use is, you know, try, try to explain to a person 400 years ago that in the 1960s, there would be human beings walking upon the surface of the moon. Um, well, they would immediately discount that fact. Well, of course that couldn't happen. Of course we couldn't walk upon the surface of the moon. Uh, the moon, after all, is a goddess who we worship. And so how could you walk on the, f- the surface of the moon? Um, but nevertheless, it happened, right? So simply because something is improbable or difficult for us to imagine should not necessarily or does not necessarily mean that it's impossible. And so one of the things that, that maybe we need to do is just learn how to thoughtfully engage the issue uh, such as this. What, what am I missing? Not much. I mean, it just, it's, there's obviously different ways of putting it, but I think you're nailing it. Yeah, when you're studying history and, and when we look at the resurrection, we're asking a question about did this actually happen in the past, you always start with what you know. For instance, if we were trying to prove that Abraham Lincoln, you know, delivered the Gettysburg Address, we start with what we know. We know that we have record of him doing so. We know that there was slavery and then there wasn't. We know that he was the 16th president, so he would have been in charge in this time. And then you argue from that to, to you draw, you know, the best hypothesis to explain all the data. And in this case, yeah, you, you mentioned the empty tomb. You mentioned the presence of the church. Those are the two I come back to. He was gone and you're here. And you have to explain that fact. You have to explain the fact that, like you said, he was killed, put in the tomb, and then he was no longer in the tomb. You have to explain the fact that you and I, a bunch of Gentiles, come into places like this on a Sunday, not on a Saturday, and we worship the God of Israel by singing songs and and reading from the apostles' teachings, not just from the Old Testament, but from what we call the New Testament. And we do so in in the center of our worship is a a gathered meal that kind of looks like spiritual cannibalism. You know what I mean? The body and blood. Even if it's symbolic, it's weird. Even weirder to a Jewish person living in the first century. And all of these changes kind of happen like that. All of a sudden, this you have to worship on the Sabbath. We would have died for this. Now we're worshiping on Sunday. Um, and you add all these new things and you point back and you have to have an explanation. So what, did he not really die? Well, that's not, that's not going to happen. I mean, the Romans know how to kill people. You know what I mean? Uh, did the disciples steal the body? So you mean tell me all these people 
uh, died for something that they knew was a lie. Uh, not this many. Um, what, so the authorities stole the body. Well, I mean, they would have just shown the body, end of story. Well, maybe it just developed as a story. Initially, they all knew that Jesus was really dead, but then they, you know, thought he was important to them in an ongoing sense, and eventually they started to say, well, he really raised, rose from the dead. Yeah, that might happen over the course of like 50 to 60 to 70 to 82, maybe 100 or 200 years, but not in the span of uh, one or two or three decades. So you look at the evidence, and as crazy as it may sound, the best explanation is that he did in fact rise from the dead, which as Chad said, that's going to have to change the way we regard what is possible. Um, but so much for our assumptions when you look at a situation like this, and you can't draw any other conclusion than that one. I'd like to address, uh, we talked a little bit about it Wednesday night, so you can listen to that teaching at a at a greater level if you so choose. But one of the things I want to ask you guys about and kind of lead into it with the, my own feeling on it in advance, kind of a fake question, is uh, <laughs> what do we say to people, and I know stories in this room, of people who almost lost their faith because of the church, yeah, because of the infighting, mm -hmm. the selfishness, the territorialism, the legalism. There are questions firing across the... Uh, you know, how do... Yeah. How do how do we react when the, sometimes the church has been more harmful than it's been promoting the kingdom of God? Yeah, yeah. Let me give two, and then, Chad, you can, you can, uh, you can wrap up, or you can clean up this one. Um, the two things I'd say are, one, um, come back to what we just said, that the verify, that, you know, the, the, the fact that is pointed to as evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity is not just, um, you know, people are good, but it's Jesus rose from the dead. So yep. there's the first part, which is, you got to wrestle with that. Something happened there. And even if your conclusion is, so Christ was really Lord, we've just all really been bad at trying to follow him, then you've at least concluded that Christ is Lord. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is, actually, I'm going to say three. Sorry, I'll try to do it quick. Second thing I'd say is part of our message is that broken people find forgiveness and they don't learn to be perfect, but they learn how to deal properly with imperfection in the church. That's part of the gospel. And so in that sense, when our brokenness manifests itself, um, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it becomes an opportunity for us as a community to say, yeah, we are imperfect trying to figure this out. We're pointing to someone who is perfect. So our witness is never look at perfection, it's look at perfection. And, uh, and our brokenness and, and the way in which we, you know, repent and receive forgiveness is part of the witness. But then the third part I'd say is I don't want to let us off the hook. That the reality of the resurrection is supposed to, it's, it's, in, uh, it's naturally, like within itself, it's supposed to result in a transformed community of persons. And so if we are claiming Christ but not living it, if we are saying, you know, yes, I believe that all this is true, but we're not actually allowing those beliefs to determine the way we live, we have become part of the problem. And I have to wrestle with that every time I look in the mirror. I'm part of the problem for why certain people push Jesus away. And that's part of the motivation for me to press further into the truth and let it transform me so that I can be more of the solution than I am the problem. Absolutely. I'm not sure that I could add anything to that um, other than just to say if that is your story, I'm, I'm profoundly sorry about that wounding and that hurt that has come about at the hands of um, maybe congregations or individual Christians. Um, I would also echo uh, what Michael said. You know, Paul tells us that God's strength is made manifest in weakness, that God's uh, strength is made manifest in our brokenness. And, and I think if we have the eyes to see, if we have the ears to hear, um, our, 
we see God at work in the midst of our communities, in the midst of our individual lives. We see God at work in those areas of brokenness. And that's not certainly to excuse it or to, to, to set it aside, um, but it is to acknowledge a fundamental fact, a fundamental reality that we come together um, in seasons of worship and to, to live lives of, of, of fellowship together. We come together to focus on a crucified and risen Lord um, who went to the cross for our brokenness. And so the brokenness of my life, the brokenness of your life leads me into those seasons of worship. It leads me into seasons of fellowship um, with other believers because I need that wholeness. I need that healing that could only come from Christ. And so um, the church is going to be a hospital. Mm -hmm. The church is going to be um, a place where sick people, broken people, imperfect people come to worship and to meet a perfect healer and savior. One of the challenges for all of us, we've been talking about it all three hours, and it's, it's really under the, it's the foundation on which we're building all of these worldviews. The resurrection reality cannot be a concept that we agree to that has no impact on our life. Michael addressed that just a moment ago. And so how do we, how do we live out the resurrection as a truth? Uh, and I'm going to ask you the obnoxious question next, Chad, mm-hmm. okay? But I want to say for us, especially for those of us who've come from an unhealthy church background, and you're in a larger place where you can hide a little bit and heal, you're welcome here to do that. That's not your end game is to heal. Your end game is to proclaim that you, you know who Jesus is because of the resurrection. You know the heart of God through the resurrection. You know the purpose of mankind through the resurrection. This worldview is not just eight different themes that make a nice series. These snap together like Legos. And we're building something. What we're building is a new life. A life founded on the resurrection that's going to make a difference, not just for me, but for other people. So... Uh, Brad's telling me the questions have come in, and he's done a great deal of summarization for me. I love this. And we asked this last hour, but let's, let's dance this dance one more time. How do we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ without being obnoxious and without being the reason that some people won't follow? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, because I, I think in our, in our culture, this is probably one of, one of the larger objections, um, because our culture has a problem with truth in general. And so when we go out into our culture declaring the truth, sometimes that is perceived to be obnoxious or arrogant. Sometimes, I've got to be honest, sometimes the problem isn't necessarily with me, it's, it's kind of on the other end. Um, but I've also, got to, I've also got to be honest enough with myself to recognize that sometimes I don't get it right. Sometimes I do go out into the world with truth, but I hold on to that truth arrogantly or obnoxiously. Um, I... I like this proverb that I heard from an apologist one time named Ravi Zacharias, who um, is, uh, he grew up in India, and he said there's this Indian proverb that says, it's no use to cut off a man's nose and then ask him to smell a rose. And, um, and his, his observation is that this is pr- precisely what a lot of churches and what a lot of Christians do. We go into the world with a certain attitude, uh, a very hostile attitude, a very contentious attitude, um, uh, uh, and then, after we've sliced off their nose, we say, oh, but Jesus loves you, and God has accepted you. But the perception is, yeah, Jesus might love me, but I sure don't get the feeling that you do, you know? 
Um, and so I want to read just a few verses very quickly um, that have helped me along this way. Uh, one is from John chapter 1. And in John 1 verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. And we typically stop our evaluation of that verse right there. Because it talks about the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation. God has made His dwelling among us, taken on flesh in Jesus Christ. But we stop reading too soon. Because the very last line of that verse says, the one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But I also want to highlight two verses from Paul. One is in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is talking to the church. He's talking about unity. And he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And then one more passage from Colossians uh, chapter 4. Uh, This is in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And here's my very basic answer. The manner in which Jesus came into the world should also be the manner in which we go into the world. Jesus came into the world literally overflowing with both grace and truth. And I think in our lives, in our ministries, we've got to develop this same difficult balance where we advocate the truth. We don't, we're not shy or bashful about the truth. These things are true. They're real. They're et- they have eternal consequences and significance. We are strong advocates of the truth. But we advocate the truth in a grace-filled way. Because the gospel truth is not true if, it's, if, if grace is not a part of it. Because graciousness is a key element of the gospel, yes? And so we've got to develop, and at the same time, we can't have grace if there's not truth behind it either. So we've got to manifest and live out this balance. Let me say one quick thing too on that is I I hear you talking through that now. It's helpful to hear it each time. And um, one of the things I'm thinking about, I think it's important is, uh, I know for me in my, in, my, in my life, there's been times when I think, okay, I know what I got to do in the moment. So when the moment comes and I'm talking to a person, I'm going to try to be gentle or I'm going to try to be gracious or I'm going to try to be patient and it doesn't work. And it's sort of like, I remember growing up, I grew up loving basketball in the Jordan days. And so everybody would stick their tongue out when they shot a, <laughs> shot a layup and they'd, you know, buy the Jordans or the knockoff Jordans. So we were in the same kind of shoes and we try to do things in the moment that looked like what he was doing, but we're missing the point that there's a whole life behind that that enables him to do what he does in the moment. And so in this sense, if you want to be a, the type of person who can demonstrate graciousness and gentleness and patience in a conversation with a non-believer or even just a person who's really wrestling, you've got to become a gentle, patient, compassionate person overall. And when you do, when you develop those virtues, then in that moment, those kind of things come out. Jesus was able to, to encounter each situation perfectly because he had a certain character. And so the goal for us is to be transformed into his likeness. Pursue these things as a whole, and then in these particular instances, they'll manifest themselves in ways that are beneficial for the person, and then also bring joy to all else who might be around. I'm going to ask you each one final question. It's going to be the toughest question of the day because you have 60 seconds to answer it. <laughs> all right. All right. And this is a great question, and this, we're going to stop at this one and have a, a bunch for Wednesday night. How can we know truth and not confuse it with legalism? Who's that for, me or him? You're on. <laughs> okay. How can we know truth and not confuse it with legalism? Man, I'd like to, I'd like to know who asked this, because I'd like for you to, 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 to talk a little more. Um, legalism is when we, 
when we make something necessary that isn't necessary in order for a person to please God. God has told us what is necessary to please him in the sense that, you know, this is the way to receive my salvation. And it's a very short list. And so I think if I could guess at what I think is behind the question, how can we know truth and not turn it into legalism, is that you don't make, you don't demand things of people that God hasn't demanded of them. Really the only, you know, Romans 10.9 is a verse I often come back to. If a person confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they are saved. I come back to that as a baseline, and really those are the things that I'm going to push for. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? If you do, then I'm not going to bring anything else into that core circle. Um, that's like the core of the core of the core. And I think the way in which to hold on to truth without becoming legalistic, part of it is everything we've said applies to this, but an additional part of it is don't take secondary beliefs and make them primary. Don't take supporting beliefs and make them as if they're the one thing that will enable a person to all of a sudden be in good favor with God. Yeah, I'd also say don't assume that just because you woke up on third base that you hit a triple. I think, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of people just assume, like they, the way that they treat truth is they treat truth like a weapon, like yeah. this, I've, I've discovered so this truth, right? Like they, so they treat truth like a weapon to wield against anyone who disagrees mm-hmm. with them. And, and so if you don't have precisely in every single detail the truth that I have discussed, it's a very arrogant sort of understanding. So rather than, you know, accepting the fact that God has revealed himself to us, we sort of arrogantly turn the tables yeah. and we become the arbiter or the dispenser of what's, what's right or wrong. And if you don't agree with me in every single instance, then you must be outside of faith or outside of truth. And I think this all comes from this notion of, we talked about the concentric circles mm-hmm. of, of truths in previous services. What we tend to do um, is we tend to smuggle um, uh, truths or beliefs that aren't necessarily central. Mm-hmm. We tend to smuggle those into the center of our faith. And if you don't agree with me in all of these fine details, then we weaponize truth. Yep. Um, and, and that's when it becomes legalistic. Yeah. Instead of focusing on the core essentials of what is a Christian worldview anyway, we smuggle a lot of things that are on the periphery into the middle. Thanks, kids. Do you appreciate these fellows like I do? Let me, let me summarize a, a good 90 minutes of conversation. We can be right and be wrong in being right. A worldview, when we talk about truth, is not our concept of having the weaponization of what God's revealed to us. Paul told us to preach the truth in love. So to be able to proclaim the truth, you have to know what the truth is. And that's a lifelong journey of opening the word of God and being led by the spirit of God to understand who he is through Jesus Christ. I think it's really that simple. In a few moments, we're gonna see some people give their lives to that truth. Because you can be right and have the truth and be wrong in how you live it out. So when we talk about world religions, what happens to those who don't believe what we believe? What happens to those who won't open themselves up to us? The the issue for us in that moment is not how truthful we are. It's how loving we are through the truth, for the truth, and because of the truth. And we're going to be discussing this more and more as we snap these pieces together and build this new life of taking every thought captive 
to Jesus. I want to encourage you to, to be open to change, to say, I've believed some things that have not proven valuable and I, I want to be different. I want the word of God to teach me because when God tells us not to do something, there is a blessing in not doing it. We say, well, it takes away my freedom. No, the blessing is in not doing it. And you only discover the blessing when you don't do it. And when God says to do something, there's a blessing in doing it. And you'll only receive that blessing when you do it. So to open ourselves up to the word of God is not how right I am. It's how open I am to be moved and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ each and every day by taking every thought captive and then letting my hands and feet follow along. So I hope this morning you've been inspired to some degree to ask yourself some big questions and to stay engaged in community as we sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Because then the church will be acting like the church. And the Spirit of God can do some pretty amazing things, I think. And so I hope you'll join us in this journey. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.